Have you ever wondered what the most dangerous creature on this earth is? According to Detective Joe Kenda, yes, that's the one from TV, it's us. But on the flip side of that, what creature can work together on a mission to help communities be places where we feel safe and people who've been affected by crime know that they're going to get all of the support that they need? That's also us. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Unlovely Truth. I am so glad that you chose to join me today. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I'm going to bring you more stories from the world of true crime, and we're going to see where that intersects with our faith. Then we'll join forces to answer what I think is every Christian's calling, and that's to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. And we will talk about a practical way that we can do that after we dive into today's stories. This is Season 3, Episode 20, and our book this week is I Will Find You by one of my favorite true crime TV personalities, Detective Joe Kenda. So you're going to get some great information from him and hopefully a little bit of inspiration, too, in this episode. I know how much you all love behind-the-scenes stories, and that's really what this book is all about. He says this is where he tells the stories that didn't make it on his super popular TV show. There's so many lessons that we can learn here. So let's just dive right in. Whether you're a private investigator like me or a police officer like Joe Kenda, every investigation catches people in the midst of what I would say is probably the worst experience of their entire lives. And while we can't change what happened, we can do our best to try to bring them some answers and maybe even a little bit of justice. And Joe starts out his book by telling us, One of the very first things that I learned as a PI, and it's whether you're at a scene or you're interviewing someone, you only get one chance to do it right. So you got to bring your best. And since Joe solved roughly 92% of the cases that he worked on in his 19 years as a homicide detective, I'm going to say he's an authority and an expert in this area. And just like us here at The Unlily Truth, he is all about teamwork. And it might surprise you just a little bit to know that he is a big fan of healing through storytelling. And that's why he says he wrote the book. So let me share some of his best stories with you. Before he learned the value of having a team that would come alongside you and support you, he responded solo to a bar fight in a really seedy area of Colorado Springs. And he thought that he was just going to walk right in and his authority as a police officer was going to impress everybody in the bar, and they would just listen to his command to break up the fight. You probably have already guessed what happened. He was wrong. One of the larger bar patrons grabbed him and just tossed him out a window. He waited for backup the next time. He got into so many situations like this that his sweet, sweet neighbors actually pooled their money together and bought him a bulletproof vest. And of course, this is back in the time before those were standard issue. And to me, what a great picture of how everyone in our community has some part to play in keeping people safe, keeping our law enforcement officers safe, keeping our communities safe. And here's a behind the scenes story that unfortunately happens a little more often than you would think is possible. I've actually got two very similar stories from my work in a probation department and in a domestic violence court. And I'll share those in just a second. So try to picture this if you can. 
Kenda and another officer were called to respond to a disturbance. Very normal. But it was at a funeral home. Not quite so part of the ordinary. And as they entered the mortuary doors, they saw a couple dozen men and women just beating the crap out of each other. Worse than that, they spotted some guy punching the deceased as he lay in his casket, trying to rest in peace. One of the mourners ended up with a skull fracture from being hit with a metal chair. Hopefully, in your world, this is not typical funeral behavior. But like I said, it's not unheard of either. One of the very first jobs I had after I got my paralegal training was in a domestic violence court. I worked directly with victims, and I learned real quickly that there's a whole lot of reasons that people end up in domestic violence court. People from every walk of life were there, all kinds of different situations. But one of the strangest and really the saddest ones was the mom who had been assaulted by her daughter at the funeral of the mom's brother. Supposedly, this man had died while he was uh, cleaning his gun, and it was it was an accident. But the family was actually, for a lot of reasons I won't go into, very worried that the daughter had actually killed him. She showed up at the funeral home, high, and things really just went downhill from there. And in the first job that I got right out of college, I worked in a probation department, and I was in charge of monitoring people that had been sentenced to community service for whatever it was that they had done. I found them places to serve. I monitored their progress and kept their probation officers informed about whether they were doing what they were supposed to do or not. There was a law student at the courthouse there. It was a small town, so everything all happened in the same courthouse. And he was clerking for the judges. He came back to visit when I happened to be working there. He had clerked before before my time there. So he came back and he was telling stories of, you know, work in his new practice And one story involved a client who, sadly, the client had passed away. And at his burial service, his other family showed up. Yes, you heard that right. He had a family on the side that his wife and their children knew nothing about. And really, I'm going to say that a burial service is not the best place to find out this sort of information for the very first time. Well, anyway. First family says that they want second family that they've never met or heard of to leave. Second family insists on staying. So, of course, a fight broke out between two of the brothers, one from each family, and it ended up with them tumbling together into the open grave. You cannot make this stuff up, which is one of the reasons, you know, for me, true crime beats fictional crime every single time. It reminds me that we're all messed up. We're all broken people. And we desperately need a God who is going to forgive our foolishness over and over and over. Another story that Kenda tells that I think is just so full of lessons to learn is the case that finally got him promoted to homicide detective. He was working on the robbery squad. And every now and then this will happen a All hands on deck call went out. They just needed every available person. A convenience store had been robbed and a clerk and a customer had been shot. They were both still alive, but it was not looking good. So homicide detectives were called in as well. And while Kenda was kind of surveying the scene, he noticed this ID bracelet on the floor. And since, like I said, nobody had died yet, the homicide detectives weren't super interested. So Kenda volunteered to take the case on no matter what happened. He went to visit the male victim, the customer, 
And this man told Kenda that he had fought with the robber and pulled an ID bracelet off the guy's wrist. Now, this was back, I think, in the 70s. And these bracelets were really, really popular. So Kenda didn't think that it was really that unique of a clue. But then he noticed that even though the bracelet itself was kind of cheap, it had expensive looking engraving on it. So he took it to a jeweler and that man told him that only one type of machine could make the cuts in the engraving on that bracelet. So now all of a sudden, something that doesn't look like a very good clue, this uniqueness makes it a much better clue. So Kenda calls the manufacturer of the machine and found out that there were 59 stores in the area that had one. So he set out ready to visit 59 stores if he had to. And then when he visited the 27th store on the list, bingo, he found the owner of the bracelet. And what I think is so incredibly helpful for all of us to learn from this is that putting in the extra work solved that crime. And then it earned him a spot on the homicide squad where he really wanted to be. If you just can't get enough true crime information, if you just really, really want more behind the scenes, more information from guests that have been on the podcast, and some recommendations of my favorite things in the true crime world, whether they're books, documentaries, whatever, and if you'd like a little bit more of that faith component with some devotionals, head to my website, theunlovelytruth.com, and you can join my membership site. I'll be uploading new content every single week. And so you'll be able to get that bonus stuff that only members are going to have access to. Remember, theunlovelytruth.com. Scroll down, join the membership site. I know that we've all watched our fair share of fictional crime TV shows or movies or whatever. And it seems like the killers just always have these crazy complex motives that detectives have to figure out so they can track them down. Let me tell you, real life is rarely that complicated. Kenda identifies three main motives for crime, money, sex, or revenge. And too often, what it boils down to in any of those three motives is really pretty trivial. Like the man who thought that his girlfriend was spending too much money. He went to his bank to check his account balance. Of course, this was back in the day when you actually had to go to the bank to check your account balance, or if you kept your own little ledger, you could do that. But he went in to check, and for whatever reason, the teller thought that she'd be real funny, and so she told him that his girlfriend had come in and taken out all of the money from their account. Before she could say, JK, he rushed out of the bank, found his girlfriend, and killed her. Somehow that actually made sense to him, even if it obviously doesn't to any of the rest of us. And then there's the paroled felon who killed his grandfather for the old man's Popeye's chicken wings. And the man who beat his wife to death with a bottle when he caught her cheating, he had hit her over a hundred times, but he asked police officers if she was going to be okay. Now, the revenge killers like him, they have a very unique perspective on their crimes, often thinking, of course, everybody's going to agree with me that my victim had it coming. And unfortunately, Drugs are and have always been a huge driver of crime. According to the National Association of Drug Court Professionals, most inmates are in prison, at least in large part because of substance abuse. They found that 80% of offenders abuse drugs or alcohol. 
and nearly 50% of jail and prison inmates are clinically addicted. And nearly 60% of individuals arrested for most any type of crime test positive for illegal drugs at the time of their arrest. And in his book, Kenda tells us the story of a guy who was seemingly just an ordinary guy. Could be your neighbor, could be your brother, could be your husband. He'd been an Eagle Scout, trained to become a plumber, and he had a steady girlfriend. Then he started using cocaine. He became very paranoid and filled with a rage that just didn't seem to have any trigger. It was just there. He started working longer and longer hours to support his habit. And when those side jobs weren't enough anymore, he started stealing. He robbed a nearby bar and pulled in nearly $1,500. Nobody resisted him, probably because he had a gun. And so he decided a year later he'd go back to the same place. But the owner had learned her lesson. She was not going to keep large amounts of cash on the premises anymore. When he found out that he was only going to get about $100, the cocaine-fueled rage really kicked in. He shot and killed the bartender and two customers and then beat and shot another customer who somehow survived. He decided then he was going to go to a neighboring convenience store, but not before stopping to set the bar on fire. At that store, he killed the clerk and her sister, who had only tagged along because her sister, the clerk, didn't want to be in the store alone. Thankfully, that store had video surveillance. And the killer was easily identified because he'd committed his crimes in the neighborhood where he lived and worked. Again, doesn't sound really smart to you and me, but when you just, the only thought that is looping through your head is, I need money for drugs, you're not thinking very rationally. You're not planning things very well. Police went to his home and ordered him to surrender. His ex-girlfriend was there. She'd left him over his drug use, but she happened to be back in town and wanted to stop by and check on him. He told her he loved her and then shot himself in the head. Remember, this is a guy who had been an Eagle Scout. He'd had a steady and stable job. He had people who loved him and he threw it all away and took five people down and traumatized untold numbers more. If you want to be a person of impact, Supporting or volunteering with groups that try to help people get off drugs would be an amazing place to serve. Of course, once you actually catch the bad guy, you got to prosecute him. And Kenda's got some great stories about that process as well. One of my favorites was about a guy who, during deliberations, sent a note to the judge asking a question, which is pretty typical. Juries do that a lot. They want to maybe have some testimony read back. They want to see some of the visual exhibits, or they ask a question because they want to know how to apply the law to what the facts are. Now, this question was not a typical thing, though. The jury wanted to know if a certain test had been done on the murder weapon. The judge said no, it hadn't, because there was no such test. It did not exist. But the jury foreman was kind of miffed, and he told the judge, well, they've got that test on CSI, which brings up a major pet peeve of mine. We value scientific evidence over testimonial evidence. They are both equally valid types of evidence. And in a lot of crimes, unlike what you see on TV, there might not be scientific evidence to recover, or it could be evaluated in different ways. I don't know if you realize this, 
but fingerprint analysis, different labs require different points of similarity to be able to call something a match. So there's no national standard. One person could say, yeah, that's a match. And another could say, no, it's not. And yes, I get testimonial evidence. You've got people who could lie or be mistaken. But scientific evidence, possibly with the exception of of DNA, but even then you can have contamination, you can have lab error. Scientific evidence is not the be-all, end-all. You've got to take all the evidence in consideration. So, okay, that little rant on my pet peeve is over now. But when you're watching scripted crime dramas, this brings up what I think is a fun game to play. Yell fake at the TV really loud every time you see a crime scene tech who is carrying a gun. They don't do that in real life. Yell when they interrogate suspects because they don't do that either. Yell really loud when they get test results back super fast because it usually takes weeks, if not months. And yell when you see the cops yelling. In real life, you can get so much more information out of suspects or witnesses by convincing them that they need to talk to you. It's in their best interest to talk to you. Yelling at them just makes them shut down, in my experience. It's a fun game. I do it all the time with law and order when the courtroom procedures don't square with reality. I so enjoyed this book. And even though parts of it can be a bit graphic, so be aware of that if you are thinking about getting yourself a copy. But if you're a Joe Kenda fan like me, you'll appreciate that dry wit and gruff charm that we all know from his TV show. But I've saved one of his best stories for last. He lets it be told by his daughter, and I think it's going to resonate with you the way it did with me. Now, both his son and his daughter served in the military. One night, after a particularly long day at work, his daughter Chris stopped at a grocery store to grab a few things for dinner. How many of us haven't done that? She's a believer. And she was just kind of chatting with God and debating whether she should go into the store or just go straight home because she was so tired. At that moment, she just knew that God was telling her that she needed to go into that store and that she needed to pay attention. So she went, she got what she needed, and just continued to wander through the store, unsure of why she was really feeling this need to stay. Suddenly, she heard a man's voice making some very inappropriate comments. He was in the aisle next to hers. So she rounded the corner and found a very, very big man making these disgusting comments to a very small and very frightened woman. Chris walked right up to the woman while casually putting one hand in her purse where she kept her gun. Using her military training, she took control of the situation just by using what she called her military command voice. When he was confronted with a woman who clearly was not going to back down, the man just backed away. Chris stayed with the woman as she checked out, as she loaded the groceries into her car, and as she drove away with no sign that anyone was following. Now, for those of us without military or police training, let's call for help. But in this situation, Chris was as well-trained or probably even better than most any help that she could have gotten. It started with her hearing God's voice and obeying. And that reminds me so much of John chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. And I'm going to read those from the New Living Translation. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, 
he walks ahead of them and they follow him because they know his voice. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that most of us haven't spent a whole lot of time around sheep. I know I haven't, but I do have a dog and my dog certainly knows my voice and mostly will do what I tell him. He knows my voice and he trusts me. So he's not afraid to follow my commands. Oh, how I wish that I always had that level of trust when I hear God talking to me, don't you? And I guess that's our version of obedience school, which my dog has been to twice. Just saying, it never hurts to refresh our training. Which leads me to this week's practical action step. I want all of us to go back to obedience school. Let's take this next week to read more of John chapter 10 and really meditate on verses three and four. Ask God to show you areas that he wants to lead you in. And then, and this next step is critical, follow him. And if you feel like sharing what he's told you and what you did to follow, I would love to have you email me at lori at the unlovelytruth.com. That's L-O-R-I at the unlovelytruth.com. Or you can message me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Facebook. I would love to hear from you. And you'll want to be sure to check out this episode's show notes. There's links where you can get more information. You can find my blog there if you want to read more. And if you're looking for more resources to jumpstart your journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact, you can sign up for my email list or join my membership site. I'd love to have you on my team. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app. 